This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Hi everybody, this is Breaking Banks Europe show, actually number unbelievable 174. Um, and we are talking today about a topic which we titled actually study now, pay later, uh, not buy now, pay later, it's study now, pay later. And I have very distinguished guests on the show today. And let me start with Marta, who is uh, almost a frequent guest to our show. It's your second participation, I've just learned. Welcome yes. back, Marta. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to have you. Uh, Tess Michaels is with us and uh, Björn Wolf. And as always, I'm very happy once you guys would introduce yourself. And Marta, as you are a pro on Breaking Banks Europe now in the meantime, why don't you start? Tell us what you're doing, what you're up to. And actually, why do you, why do I have you on the show? What what makes sense for that? You know? Thank you so much for inviting me the second time. So I guess the first was was not that bad. Uh, I hope uh, I'll I'll do better today, just because uh, this is very dear, obviously, to to my heart and, and to my mission. And so I'm the co-founder of Student Finance, and Student Finance is a career mobility platform for reskilling and upskilling. And I think that's quite interesting because we will talk a lot about education financing. Uh, and I think the platforms that we have here today, I think we go well beyond financing. And I would love us to to, to go deep on, on, on that part of obviously the, the, the conversation. And so student finance, we focus on um, higher education segments linked to the most in-demanded skills or kind of the biggest skills gap in the labor market. And I would say that we're provided through three core pillars that I will go very shortly. The first one is uh, the data layer. So uh, a labor data infrastructure that allows us to really know uh, what are these segments, right? What we ought to be obviously financing, but also what people ought to be studying. And I think that's particularly important in this stage of economy where things are changing absurdly fast. Uh, the second one is the financing piece. And, and there we started with income share agreements and we will soon expand to fixed installments as well. Um, and the third one is the, I would say, end-to-end -end marketplace between education providers, talent, and, and employers, which is obviously uh, a fundamental piece when you approach, I think, education financing from an outcomes-based perspective, which we all do. That sounds, that sound, Marta, that sounds like the, the good old ecosystem idea you're following and platform, right? It is, yes. But, but, but I think the core... The core important thing here is that what we are trying to deliver to the users through an education financing, by financing is the tool, we are here to deliver yeah. outcomes. And so everything needs to gravitate around those user outcomes. All right, great. Tess, how about yeah. you? Yeah, why, I do couldn't... I have you? why do I have you on the show? Yeah, no, absolutely. And first of all, I, I couldn't agree more. Marta, I think it's so critical. I think we're all in the space thinking about alignment and, you know, how do we really drive the right incentives, um, especially around education, which is this inflection point in someone's life, right? Where, you know, they may be a barista while they're in school part-time, but they're studying or training to be a nurse and ultimately will have that, you know, future ability to pay. Um, you know, my background is in finance, but I founded Stride Funding very much from a student-first perspective. I was a graduate student um, at Harvard. Sticker price was hefty, as you can imagine. And ultimately, I think many students go through, you know, the back and forth of, is it worth it? Is the cost going to be worth, you know, what the outcomes yield? And ultimately, we've evolved a lot as a company. We now have um, three products in market. Income share agreements were our first. Um, deferred tuition agreements are second. Non-cosigner loans are third. Uh, we play across degree and non-degree. Um, so, you know, more traditional university programs as well as, you know, upskilling and boot camp programs and healthcare and STEM are two of our largest segments within that. Um, and, and similar to Marta, we, we also have recently brought employers into the mix to really help sponsor that education as well and connect that ecosystem. And so ultimately, it's all about how do we 
stay student-centric, regardless of the menu option or type of financing vehicle that we put in front of these students. So. Cool. Thank you so much, Tess. Uh, very exciting. Uh, thanks for being on the show. And Björn, last but not least, but that's, you know, being a gentleman, I'm, I'm happy you waited for your moment. Tell me, why are you on the show, Björn? Thank you for having me. I'm Björn. Uh, I'm a co-founder and CEO of Lendors. And um, with Lendors, we're particularly focusing on students from developing and emerging countries who would like to further their education uh, at, at top universities um, in Europe right now is our operational focus. So the kind of social impact uh, mission which we have is we're identifying talented students which want to take the next step. They have a more difficult risk profile than domestic students just by the by the nature of where they're from and um we're really making sure that uh, we're selecting the right students in the in initial initial stage we're funding them we're helping them get a footing in a new environment when they when they come they just um aside of the money they need some support in the first first steps and of course we're also very interested in them uh, finding a good employment afterwards and uh, the vision we have is to create a financial and career ecosystem for high-skilled immigrants uh, into Europe. Okay, cool. Uh, another very interesting component to the whole discussion. You know, before before we kind of dig deeper, let us for our audience maybe describe the market we are operating in, because I could guess that maybe the one or the other is more like in my age. You know, studies have uh, quite a quite a while ago. Uh, it's more like for my kids an interesting discussion actually than for me. But being a parent, I think that's nevertheless very relevant and interesting. On the one side, um, what what is the market we are in? In preparation for the call, you know, we, we I had a look to the U.S. numbers as the U.S. I guess is the biggest market for students financing and the most mature market uh, for that sector of for that very particular sector of uh, financial services. And following the numbers, actually using ChatGPT for my preparation, um, I'm admitting this. Uh, Federal Reserve reported second quarter 2021 a total outstanding student loan debt in the U.S. of approximately 1.5 trillion. That's a massive number, and it's even getting bigger once we compare it to the credit card outstanding loans, which is something like for the same time 868 billion. Um, so, you know, with simple math, something like the double of the credit card business. And we know that uh, President Biden actually and the Biden administration is currently working on a on a ceiling for those student debt in order to make that um, a life worthy living for postgraduate students paying back their loans. So how would you see the European market in comparison uh, actually to the U.S. market, Marta, maybe I start with you. What, what, what is your view on this? So the, the tradition on traditional education financing in Europe is obviously very different from that U.S. context. I actually think that we are uh, in a, still a growing uh, side of, of the market, but a lot of education is going on, right? So actually, I think the emergence of the income share agreement platforms is is being what is leading the education uh, around education financing in Europe. And I think that's very important and interesting because income share agreements being these, bring these outcomes conversation. And so I think we are kicking off or opening up the European market from a very different lens than what you have in, in the US. And I think in Europe, it also tends to be a lot more focused on higher education versus the US that you have that big comp component of obviously undergrads as well. And so mm -hmm. I think the mix is very different okay. and healthier Tess. In, in that growth. Tess, you agree yeah. on this? So we play entirely in the U.S. And so from the perspective of, you know, uh, you know, working within a framework where, again, there is a lot of concentrated players in your traditional lending markets, I think the biggest pain points in the U.S. have more so been around access to education for students who don't have a cosigner, which is really code for a wealthy parent, right, or family member. And ultimately in the U.S., despite the fact that many students may not have seven years of credit history, most lending decisions are still based on FICO scores, which is a very traditional metric, which excludes a lot of borrowers who are high potential, but just don't have those doors open for them. And so ultimately, I mean, the reason we entered the income share space was because we were able to understand a borrower's future ability to pay and their 
expected earnings and the quality of the programs that they're enrolling in. And so we're able to enter a relatively concentrated market within the U.S., albeit a very large market, um, through a different vehicle like an income share agreement, which is, of course, very different than what you see in Europe. Yeah. Tess, allow me one one cynical question, maybe, and, and that's why I'm here, uh, actually. Um, you know, we all know that tuition fees at U.S. universities yeah. forever have been extremely high. And, and yeah. when I started my business career, I had the opportunity to, at least for a summer course, visit Cornell University. Mm -hmm. So I really know what I'm speaking about, right? And that was in the late, in the late 80s, right? So um, could it be actually that tuition fees increased with, in parallel, the offer of uh, student loans because suddenly there was a higher liquidity in the market, so I can yeah. I can charge you more? Yeah, so it's a very fair question. I would say a few pieces there. One, you're right. The rate at which tuition has risen in the U.S. is, as you can imagine, pretty astronomical. Yeah. Um, with that being said, we're one of the few players that plays across degree and non-degree programs because I do think that especially with outcomes-based funding products, there's this new wave toward really understanding what is the inherent ROI or value of these different programs per dollar that you're spending based on the quality of that education. And I think that puts a lot more onus or responsibility on institutions to really deliver on what they are promising toward. And ultimately, we do have a unique system with our federal student loan uh, program, which, especially within the graduate market, is relatively uncapped. And so you can increase tuition accordingly, but ultimately that's not sustainable. And so I think we'll see a lot of changes in the space, especially over the next decade, around how programs are structured and what institutions are able to command, especially with all these entrants of certificate programs, boot camp programs, apprenticeship programs that have been cropping up. Yeah, it's 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 all in line. I would say that that you know we we identify education to be a business, right? And once you once you shop for the solution at a business, it's all too normal that well, from once in a while you need finance for that in order or yes. funding for that uh, in order. Um, I, I do definitely understand that, in particular in Germany, where we follow up this kind of um, education justice philosophy, which means that all and everybody must have the same chances uh, to. Uh, access a university or any, uh, by the way, any kind of education uh, resulted then in a state grant of BAföG or whatsoever uh, in order to make those people study. Uh, I think that would be a different show to find out whether that really worked out or not, Björn. I'm not sure. What, what is your take on that? Yeah, I think um, a couple of thoughts about this one. On the, on the US versus uh, EU, uh, first of all, I think when we talk about value for money, there's a clear indication that in the EU there's a significantly higher ROI uh, for education. So what we're what we're looking at are um, our our sweet spot are um, uh, STEM degrees, kind of engineering technical degrees, where a student studies at TU Munich or WRTH Aachen or or similar universities, and with something in the range of ten thousand euros, they can study for a year and have a solid kind of engineering STEM master's degree afterwards. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the US, you are very very fast in the hundreds of thousands and. Sure, maybe the expected earnings are slightly higher in the US, but the, just from an ROI perspective, Europe is very attractive. And then the, the second part with a kind of um, uh, justice and fairness, it is um, nuanced. So when you when you talk about BAföG or other support programs, they're typically focused on domestic students. So as a, if you're a domestic student, you have a lot of access to all kind of subsidized programs, um, uh, subsidized loans from the government or subsidized grants or others. For non-domestic students, for international students, it is significantly trickier because they neither get the classical loan. If they come to a bank, they again ask for uh, a Shufa score or a FICO score or whatever the, the local uh, credit agency is, uh, and wouldn't get a uh, get a, a loan, and typically are just left behind. So when it comes to educational justice, there's a clarity that we do need additional labor force in in Europe, and you can solve this by reskilling the existing labor force or by uh, kind of uh, getting additional labor force uh, into the uh, into the continent, but um, uh, there's clearly a lack of, of funding for for them, and this is where where Lindors comes in. And we have specifically focused on Europe because we believe here is a higher ROI, dollar for dollar or euro for euro in this case. 
I, I think even, even uh, you know, I did read an article, in, again, preparation for that show at the FT, in the FT the other day, where one of, uh, I think, it was it the dean of LSE in London or King's, uh, claiming that they have a higher justice uh, by uh, by the definition of ex- people's access to universities because they are providing student loans, uh, as much as I understood it, by the university or by the state, uh, repayable, actually, the BAFIC, I think, as much as I know, is, is BAFIC repayable or, or is it a grant? It's, it's, it's complicated. It's generally repayable, but if you repay it early, that's heavily subsidized. Okay. Okay, and and he's claiming that because there's a higher percentage of um, um, people leaving school than moving over to universities than in other countries in in Europe. So uh, obviously that seems to work. I would question it a bit, but anyhow, that's not for us. Now, after we we spoke about the, what, what do you think? What is what is an ideal and and following your concepts? Actually, I think you would have different uh, definitions by that. But what is an ideal person you would recommend actually, and to think about uh, getting uh, a a uh, financial support for his or her studies? Uh, is there any any kind of persona that you would see to be an ideal person? Tess, let me start with you. Yeah. So. Ultimately, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. The reason we have multiple products in our portfolio at Stride Funding is because ultimately these are menu options for students. Mm. And based on their background, their need, and their risk tolerance, I think different products work well. Um, Ultimately, when you think about the early days of building outcomes-based products, the better your income prediction models are, the lower variability of the earnings of the program the more affordable ultimately the product can be structured before you collect enough data and, and you know can start stretching those bands. I think that's probably why you've heard a number of folks on this call talk about fields like STEM, like engineering or healthcare, again, because of the predictability. Um, again, if we think about access, though, it's the ability to offer it across a, a whole variety of types of programs. And that, again, requires you to have installment products income-based products and, and others. Um, and so, again, that, that would really be my view. Isn't, isn't, that, uh, isn't that also, isn't there the danger that you would create something like an oversupply on students, actually, or postgraduates? And I remember once reading in the San Francisco uh, Chronicle whatsoever that there, is, that there was a, a Californian oversupply in lawyers, actually, because mm-hmm. student finance partners did focus on exactly those studies and so on. Yeah. So in this year, you had, I don't know, 10,000 lawyers. Your yeah. normal demand was 1,000, and you had 9,000 lawyers actually being maybe unemployed and not yeah. and not in the position to pay back, actually. Yeah, Yeah, I think, I think, first of all, you know, we've each talked about different versions of how to bring employers into the mix so that there is more connectivity regarding placement and enrollment in these programs. Mm-hmm. But Ultimately, there is still such a need for transparency. And when I say transparency, I mean, in the U.S., we have the college scorecard which get, and, and other data sources that do exist. They give you a lot of clarity on the quality of different programs and earnings expectations and the rest. But ultimately, it's not actually designed in a way that's very user friendly, in yeah. a way that's you know, easily um, you know, understandable by the average consumer or student. Right. And so most decisions around types of programs they should join, what type of profession someone should pursue is influenced by your family, the people you grew up around, institutions that are near to you or that you know the name of and have familiarity with, rather than really understanding what is your maximum, you know, uh, willingness to spend, ability to borrow, ambitions as far as what you want to pursue, and the amount of time that you can invest in your education. And, you know, we have a long way to go in the States and I'm sure, you know, in Europe as well, um, that I think we're, we're all eager to start cracking at. So, yeah. Okay. Marta. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with, with Tess. I think in Europe, we are, I think, significantly behind in standardization of, you know, how we evaluate that quality on how schools are actually tracking the outcomes. So something that we saw when we started in the market is that there was, 
a significant discrepancy between the data that school reported and the actual data that we verified, right? Obviously, you know, for a student finance context, you know, we launched in 2020. We've gone through a pandemic. We've gone through now the current, obviously, uh, economic cycle. So that massively affects outcomes, salary levels, et cetera, and placement rates and, and cycles, certainly. But it's very important that we create the, the dialogue and transparency on how we are actually monitoring uh, and communicating to users uh, this data, right? Because that should be a core part of how their decisions are made. And also go, going back to, to the point that you're making on kind of oversupply, I think it's crucial that we're monitoring these on an ongoing basis and that there is a, a, a layer of distance between the platforms and the education partners slash segments in the sense that we student finance, we are, we always communicate that we're kind of sector agnostic. We exist to empower access to education, in our case, reskilling and upskilling, to where society and companies need it the most. What mm. we need is to monitor what these sectors are. And for instance, now we are focusing a lot in mapping the green skills market. So supporting the transition to the net zero economy, which is something that is massively growing in, in demand. But when we were fundraising, we had a lot of investors who would ask us like, oh, but why don't you go vertical? We don't want to go vertical exactly because of that. We don't want to be so involved into the, obviously, the segment or the vertical that we're addressing that we cannot make that database decision on when, okay, now data science is enough. We need to be training people into the other segments. So obviously, what, what we ought to be training people to and financing people into needs to be dictated by data itself and what the labor market and society is needing the most. John, I think your approach is is different because you're focusing on students coming from uh, emerging markets as much as I understood it, coming to Europe and studying in Europe. And I could guess then maybe going back to their home country and taking responsible higher level leadership and decision making positions there. But nevertheless, what what is your take on that? Is is whom? So your target group, I would say, is is pretty specific in comparison to Marta and Tess, uh, and you made a decision on this. So why sure. did you do so? Yeah. Sure, sure. I mean, basically, we saw there's a, a gigantic gap in the market that there's essentially um, an under uh, like under service for. Um, uh, people from developing in emerging markets. They want to study. In many cases, they have the uh, admission letters from the university. They they could study. They're just lacking the, the money. And um, it's pretty clear cut. If you don't prove that you have enough money to get a visa, then you will not get a visa and basically you will not enter uh, the, the, the country. So there's a there's a pretty pretty uh, strict one. So we decided to, to tackle this problem. Um, uh, both because there is a strong social impact angle. We want to make sure that everybody has a chance to get uh, the education they want. But also, of course, um, financing people, there's there's money to be made. It's 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 going both in in parallel. And um, yeah, we're focusing uh, to begin with also on on the STEM uh, STEM subjects and a few selected um, business schools, um, precisely for the point which we mentioned earlier. The predictability in the beginning is just um, just easier. And with a with an oversupply, just one last sentence to to this one. Um, if you have an outcome-based payment, like an income share agreement, it's actually actively against the oversupply. Because if somebody is studying something which is not needed by the market, they will have a tougher time getting either no offer or, or worse offers. And um, if someone is studying something which at least uh, the financing partner deems to be uh, needed by the market, it kind of incentivizes them to go into the areas which are underserved and disincentivizes from the others. So so I would say quite quite opposite to what you said, um, outcome-based financing is is kind of actively uh, combating oversupply in, in areas. Which which then actually is creating also the question that by the selection, actually, the question is why would we leave it to business decision makers what to study and what not, and, and whether this is social or good for a society, and which banks maybe to support you on all this business and much more we're going to speak about in the second half of this show. So stay tuned and listen to our funding commercial break uh, in the meantime. 
At timepledge.org, we are building the largest free coaching and advisory platform for entrepreneurs by providing mentorship opportunities based on pledge time. Our network of seasoned industry experts acting as coaches is working for free, pledging their valued time to the next generation of entrepreneurs who will change everything. Our portfolio of sessions goes over every skill an entrepreneur needs to successfully launch his or her startup from how to pitch and behave with investors to how to best market your idea online or even how to best manage your team we have the perfect sessions with the perfect mentors want to learn how to become the best entrepreneur you can be or mentor the next generation of entrepreneurs in africa and asia please visit timepledge.org and let's get you started Here we are again. This is uh, Study Now, Pay Later. That's the Breaking Banks uh, podcast and show number 174. We still need to do this show. You know, we need the money. So uh, nobody's lending us money. And we didn't study. Otherwise, we would have a very good profession. Um, now, um, we just discussed actually about customer selection. What are the personas we are supporting as I like the phrase, actually, Marta, I think you said it, ISA platforms, uh, which is something more technically, isn't it? So it's an income share agreement. So you, you regard yourself to be an income share agreement platform. That's that's the technical term. So we've started with the income share agreement product, which is built, well, in our perspective, or most suitable for the reskilling use case. So people going for these big life transformations. And the, the benefit of the income share agreement, so, you know, we actually, I would say the biggest difference is for income share agreements, we underwrite based on future income. Uh, versus your current income. And that allows us to obviously support a lot of people who are underemployed or unemployed. Actually, no, through the, the history of student finance platform, we had a lot of times that roughly 50% of our applicants were from this segment, right? And, and, and that allows them to actually go through these big life transformations with the financing support. Uh, and they would, th this segment would certainly be rejected in any traditional financing, uh, uh, obviously, product. Also, they are going through a big life transformation that is daunting, right? This segment does need, obviously, the downside protection of only paying once they secure a job and can afford it. Uh, and they need a lot of support for, for job placement. So, you know, we believe that that is absolutely the right segment for reskilling. But when you go for upskilling, and upskilling is a huge market, you know, nowadays we are obviously in the world, I don't think anybody disputes of lifelong learning. Each of us needs to do training every two to three years. And that applies to everyone. It applies from people who graduated two years ago or someone who is in the labor market for 40 years, right? And so we are also developing products that are suitable for people throughout this journey. But of course, when you are employed or when you have a stable income, you want to defer payments, you want flexible a flexible payment structure, but you don't need as much that downside protection uh, and obviously that, uh, that that cycle. And so we are developing products that are suitable for the different segments across, obviously, the, the, the reskilling and upskilling journey. Okay. So what is, what is uh, given the fact that I guess none of the three of you actually does, is, is holding, are you holding, is, is there any financial services license required for the business you're doing? Tess, you, 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 sorry, Tess, yeah. You're yeah, so, <laughs> so uh, no, so I, I mean, I think there's there's a few components here. So we've raised about $150 million to fund the assets themselves, okay. via banks and credit funds into special purpose vehicles. So okay. we separately raise venture dollars to fund our platform and people, and then raise, um, you know, credit facilities to fund the the students themselves. And so that's one piece when we think about it from a financial perspective. And then also within the U.S., the space itself historically was very much in a gray area from a regulatory perspective of, do you need licenses to operate a financial product like this? The days of that are gone. Um, in the U.S., it is much more black and white, which we are so grateful for. Um, we have always treated our products like traditional loans. When you think about it from consents, disclosures, and the rest. But now we also work with a chartered bank partner. Um, to have the equivalent of state licenses um, in, in every state. And so that ultimately gives us a lot of regulatory rigor 
when we're actually offering and originating these these assets. Yeah, makes sense. I think Bjorn, how's how's that with your uh, solution? So in, in Europe, the uh, situation is a little bit uh, a little bit different. So um, in Germany, where we're kind of um, uh, most at home, uh, there's KWG, um, which is kind of the the big banking law which uh, everybody is is worried about. And um, the question is whether an income share agreement is a loan or is not a loan. And um, the BaFin is relatively explicit in in this regard, and they're saying a loan is something that has to be unconditionally paid back. If there's an unconditional uh, duty to pay it back. It is considered a loan, and it is treated by all the kind of lending regulation. Um, if there's no unconditional duty to repay, which, for example, if the student doesn't find a job or gets sick or something happens, um, this is when it really differs in the in the European perspective uh, from from lending, and um, uh, this is what makes a, makes a difference. So the important thing is uh, to make sure that. It is really outcome-based, and there's no duty to repay it. Um, otherwise, it would fall under lending regulation. And um, ensuring this uh, kind of uh, brings it out of the lending regulation in in Europe, uh, unlike uh, US, from from what I understand. Of course, notwithstanding from this, whenever you're collecting the money, and um, uh, it depends a little bit on your structuring. If you do it in through a fund structure or SPV structure, of course, there's tons of regulation on this side. But the the I think the difference uh, from the US and the European perspective is really in this kind of unconditional repayability, which makes it under a European um, uh, directive not uh, not a loan. Which means, explain me that, Björn. This means actually I'm, I'm falling sick at the end of my studies or whatsoever. Uh, I have a loan. I have, you, you did lend me some money or whatever you want to call it then. Um, you have an ISA with me. Let me call it like this. Uh, and for that ISA purpose, you gave me money. And now actually just before starting to pay back, actually, I fall sick. And, and then I, I do not need to pay back? Or that, that, that's precisely right. So in a traditional loan, you have a principal and you have an interest rate and you have to pay back both the principal and interest rate, no matter what. And if you don't pay it back, there will be kind of um, uh, foreclosure and they take your, your stuff in your car. For us, we're underwriting a student and we say, for example, we're going to get 8.3% of the income for four qualifying years, as an uh, example. And then if the income during these four qualifying years is higher, we get 8.4% 8 of, of this higher number. If it's lower, we get less. And if it's below a certain threshold, the duty to repay isn't happening during yeah. these four years. It, it moves a little bit back in time. And if there's a, a total contract duration, which is extended, uh, there's no no yeah. obligation to repay at all. I, 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 yeah, I, I would just quickly add, I think it's important to note that one, most players in the space make sure there's a number of standard deviations from what that minimum income threshold is and what the expected earnings is. And ultimately, I know at least it's at Stride Funding, and I'm sure at both of your um, companies as well, we, we put a lot of thought around maximum percentages of income that we will charge. So there's no moral hazard issues around folks changing their behavior so that they are not earning above that threshold. Ultimately, it's in their best interest to make 95% more money versus not pay 5% of that income, right? And so it has to be structured in a way that is student-centric, but also that recognizes this is a real obligation that across a diversified number of students should make this sustainable so that there is more capital in the space to keep these types of products in flow. It's actually both to, to some degree. So what we observe is um, both the percentage is, is tricky. If you're taking too much of the percentage, it leads to uh, some 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 unwanted behaviors, but also the duration. If if we're funding the, the student, we don't want to extend it beyond a certain amount of, of time, which is nice in the European context because education is relatively cheap. I would imagine this is more of a challenge in the US. If you have a very expensive educational, educational program, you need to make the money back. Either you have them pay back forever or you charge relatively high rates. But that's just, I think, one of the differences between the EU and the, and the uh, American context. So, so Bjorn, what is your average ticket size and what is your average duration then, if if you, if you may share that or if if that's confidential, let me know. Sure, sure, no, no, it's not not um, confidential. So, ticket size, we we typically go for um, like I mentioned, uh, state sponsored um, uh, um, engineering schools, so something like TU Munich, WTH Aachen, similar type of universities, or some business schools. Um, they have different prices, but on the on the engineering, it's around 10k typically our our ticket size, which we which we give to the to the students and then in terms of the um percentage and um uh, and um duration 
of course, it depends on the student and on the amount and a bunch of other factors. Uh, we try not to let it go beyond 12% of the of the gross income. And um, typical contact duration, something between three and six years. It, it really depends. But it's really, a, for, for in our case, a relatively short amount of time and a relatively low percentage of the income, which is only possible because the total ticket size is relatively modest. Okay, say it again. So duration is three to five years. Yeah, three to six years, something like this, yes. Three to six years. Marta, on your end, ticket size, duration, gross income, 12%, by the way, 12% income, by the way, on gross, 12% on the gross income could easily be whatever, like 20% on the net. It, it's I think max. it goes, yeah, it, it goes, I think the average in European tax brackets, it goes, I think, around 16-ish, but... Okay. Yes, which again is still affordable, and I think affordability needs to be obviously a central conversation okay. around this. Uh, but but I, for us, it's similar to, to to Bjorn. So our ticket size. So we operate in the UK as well, which have uh, slightly mm -hmm. higher tuition fee levels than the our European jurisdictions. But now it's around uh, the ten thousand euros ticket size, uh, and the typical duration is three to four years. Okay, very similar. So I, I, I would think, just like to I would just like yeah, to make no, a note no. on, on the regulatory side, if I may, just because we please go ahead, go ahead. Sure. We work we work across, you know across European. Um, so we are authorized by the FCA, so we do have a regulatory license, and I think you know just like uh, tests how our approach to the market is, we are compliance first. We want to be. We actually designed a product to be generating value for users. And we are here to obviously deliver that value and, and give them all the user protections that they deserve. So I guess the question when you go about market expansion is not about those kind of compliance and best practices, is about what are the license barriers for you to launch in a new geo for, for student friends, right? And I would just like to highlight that even when you go for consumer, traditional consumer lending, that is not harmonized across the European Union. It massively differs. So in Spain, you don't need a license. In Germany, you need a license. And I think for income sharing agreements, we have been speaking with a lot of regulators across Europe. And this is far from being harmonized that income share agreements are not treated. The Bafin is one of the examples, and there are other European jurisdictions where they treat, they put income share agreements under an exemption. But there are other regulators, like Portugal, where I live, that they see income share agreements as much a traditional loan. And they would expect you to obviously follow the, the authorization and license and licensing processes as any consumer finance process. So we need to approach these geo by geo and our approach to student finance is again we engage with regulators we explain the product we explain how we underwrite what are we you know trying to achieve by designing the product in this way and then if a license is required then obviously mm -hmm. we will follow suit i think at our stage because we are already licensed in in, in the uk or authorized in the uk for us you know we have a, a regulatory playbook and it's quite easy to turn this around because although it is not a harmonized what you need to comply with, it's very similar, right? It's designed yeah. in a way to be to be very similar across years. So I just wanted to give that note on 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 regulation. Well, that's that's extremely helpful, Marta. Thank you so much again. And for the ones who do not know, I've been uh, CEO of a bank for more than twenty years. So uh, I'm I'm in particular interested once I hear that uh, once people would not pay back out of my perspective alone, right? That we just write it off. Uh, and that's but, it. And, but you see, okay. regard, regardless of the regulatory context of the product itself, that is how income share agreements work. So you see, in the UK, we are we are authorized. We require a license that is very similar from a traditional uh, consumer lending license. But still, that that is the mechanics of the product. If yeah. a user does not get a job earning above the minimum income threshold through the duration of the contract, they will not pay one cent and the contract will terminate in good standing. They are not defaulted. It just means that we as a platform need to write it off. But also, you see what that creates is that it is our responsibility to support the user in that journey. But also, I think it brings another thing that is, I think, absolutely critical for our platforms, which is income verification. We need to make sure that we're getting access to real employment data of the users and 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 that part is something that we at student finance have been focusing a lot again for us it needs to be done geo by geo with integrations a lot of times to either payroll providers or to social security and tax authorities uh, themselves but this is crucial because users or some users will try to 
play the system, which means again, or 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 they go, or for instance, users that go through a freelancing route, right? They create an entity, and then it's very hard for you to verify which income they are reporting. Uh, but this is crucial for income share agreements that we have um, a direct access to the, the the source of truth when it comes to income validation. And I'm sure Tess and, and, and Bjorn, I'm sure you agree on, on this part. And it's it's something that for us, it will be extremely helpful that would be standardized in a cross-European basis. Yeah. Now, obviously, it's very it's, it's very national. Marta, Marta uh, I think uh, we will, none of us, even you, that you're much younger than me, we will not experience any harmonization on that topic in Europe. Forget it. Just simply forget it, right? <laughs> and, um, I gave up on that totally, totally. Tess, just just yeah. allow me to come back to my my kind of uh, yeah, number question, ticket size, duration, and percentage mm -hmm. of gross income. What, what yeah. how how that how does that play out on your end? Yeah. So again, we play across degree and non-degree programs. Our non-degree programs, the average ticket size is usually ten to fifteen thousand dollars. Okay. Duration is call it you know two to four years. Um, so very similar, frankly, than both of you. And the other piece, which I think, you know, gets lost oftentimes is people see the total tuition costs in the States, but the bulk of that tuition, we always recommend students take subsidized federal loans first, tap out on that, and then students look at private loans. And so ultimately the actual gap that most students need, even for degree programs is only 15 to $20,000. And so it actually ends up being fairly similar as both of you, where the durations of those products are you know, four or five years, right? And so um, in a lot of ways, what I'm at least getting out of this talk is, you know, as different as we may have started the conversation across the US and Europe, there's actually so many similarities. And just like Marta, you talked about the, the geo differences, we have differences in states in the US yeah. on how California thinks about, you know, different loan products versus, you know, Colorado, et cetera. Um, and so ultimately you always look for ways to standardize. It's why we work with a charter bank that did a lot of the heavy lifting, understanding what requirements were across each and every state. And it's, you know, why exactly like you said, you need great middleware to do income verification, employment verification, and to know exactly where your borrower is so you can support them best and also deliver on a really good product. So excellent. Thanks. Thanks so much. So that means actually um, that that brings me to one question. What is the expectation of your investors actually? So to to speak about motivation and incentives, you know, and and synchronization of incentives. What what is what is even I, I might be an LP providing your dollars that you then organize to be distributed with the students. Uh, I might be maybe a bank that is providing a part of its loan book to be distributed via your platforms? What, what is the expectation of those partners? I, I'm sure, you know, they are not doing it just for, for the positive impact on society, are they? Tess, maybe you so, start again. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so it's interesting. We've actually worked with a whole spectrum of investors at this point. We started with large impact investors, multi-billion dollar nonprofits in the States that truly did want to focus on that double bottom line. They wanted a sustainable return, but ultimately were really focused on us being able to increase access for students across the states. And cost of capital was very low. I mean, senior debt at low single-digit yields, um, which allowed us to scale and offer flexibility of a product, but also affordability. We then had enough data to back that we had you know, a viable product to then bring bank capital in. We were actually the first player in the U.S. Uh, doing income share products to bring a national bank in. Um, and then our latest fund is very traditional credit investors as senior debt and MES. And ultimately what it's shown us is there's appetite across the board. The question is based on their return expectations, some may be more interested in non-degree, shorter term programs versus others may have more appetite across longer duration, you know, more traditional programs. Okay. Um, so. Would you see that? And Bjorn, I'm, I'm looking to you then. And I add an, an, uh, uh, another question on top of that, what we just learned from Tess, actually. Would you see that then under stress in a changing interest rate environment now that we have increasing interest rates on the market? Maybe money would prefer to stay with 
more secure investments, providing whatever, like a 3% yield and so on, uh, on, a, on, a, on a five to 10 year bond or whatsoever. Uh, and maybe money is not that easy to get anymore for, for your product and services. Sure, sure. Uh, first of all, um, in terms of the sources of money and also the motivations of money, I, I want to uh, underline what uh, what Tess said. Particularly for us, um, enabling people from developing in emerging countries um, also have a specific focus on on women, because oftentimes women, um, like if a family only has has enough money to send one one child abroad. It unfortunately, in many regions, tends to be the boy, no matter has a, who has a better uh, the better grades in the in the family. Um, so the social impact uh, part is really strong, and this, of course, does play a role. If if someone says um, this is not just a for profit investment, um, it's not just selling whatever tobacco or firearms or, or something uh, which makes a maximum return, but there's a social impact um, uh, angle here, which in our case is particularly strong. So this this does play a role uh, on the broader picture i mean logically anyone who's dispersing money and needs to take in money on the other side of course if if you're if you're one one if interest rate goes up if the entire tide goes up um you have two options you can pass it on to the student and that's possible mm -hmm. but that's ultimately going to be, be an issue with affordability like tess mentioned or you can kind of hit your own margin so overall yes as money dispersers interest rates do play a role but um since there's a specific social impact angle it's not just the pure capital markets but it's a combination of social impact and um uh, the financials okay M marta you can uh, you can confirm that yes we could definitely confirm what we see happening as well is that there, there are a lot of benefits these days for traditional finance players meaning asset managers credit funds banks etc on the ESG side, right? So they even have funding benefits to be playing in the ESG space and, and doing obviously uh, transactions with a positive social impact. So I think that they are also wanting to enter this space and we find a lot of traditional players attractive to our niche exactly because of the impact side. Although obviously they are validating track record that the operation works, that the economics work and that we, we will be here, obviously, in the wrong run uh, that, you know, the false rates work, etc. And so I think this is a, a, an extra that allows us to access the market. And I think it's a massively leveraged versus non-impact or non-ESG uh, platforms accessing the market at the moment. Right, because certainly now that that cost is being passed on to to the platform. At Student Finance, we also uh, closed a large facility with an asset manager uh, last year, so we actually are we we have a fixed cost of funding for the next couple of years, and so uh, that will obviously helping us to navigate this cycle with uh, with stability. But mm -hmm. I we are in contact with a lot of players, and we hear that uh, certainly uh, these costs are being passed on to end consumers because otherwise it's just unsustainable for platforms to be operating at. Uh, negative net income margins. Yeah, I understand. Actually, you could claim that you're following the UN sustainability goals, and I think it's goal number 10, uh, fighting inequality, uh, actually, that you are uh, acting on, right? So um, we, 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 we at Student Finance, we believe we touch three, so... At, at least. Yeah, at least so yeah. there is quality education, so the number four, yeah, which we, we are tackling. The eight, which is decent work and economic growth, which, again, when you are doing success-based financing, this is a this is the goal. And so very strong on that one as well. And, and the last, the tenth, the reduced inequalities, which... Yeah, then fighting poverty. Isn't that a, another one? Um, fighting yeah. poverty? Yeah, absolutely. Eventually, yes. Yeah, so um, wrapping it up and coming to the end of the show. Now, let us actually speak maybe to the students, and and let me let me allow you to actually maybe give a little bit of advertising for your platforms and solutions, because as much as I understand now, out of again the banker in me speaking, out of risk management necessity, you know, we of course need to take care of the loan taking party, and and as you explained me, we need to take care that this person is getting the best possible job with the best possible payment, so that the likelihood of repay actually, no matter whether you know, whether we treat it as a loan or not, anyhow, we need the money back. Um, actually, the likelihood is increasing. So what are the services and solutions? And following this ecosystem platform idea, actually, and I'm going to ask each of you, what are the services and solutions you 
provide me as a student on top on of of just giving me the money Björn what what on top do you provide me to to kind of give me support for my young life in this situation sure sure so the way we look at it it's almost a bit like a like a vc fund we have to do two things right we have to make the selection in the beginning this is very important if you select someone who ultimately was not the right person to select, it's very hard to ameliorate it later. And then secondly, during the student's lifetime, it's important that the student succeeds as, as best as possible. For us, concretely, this means when they come, we want to provide them with a kind of good first uh, foothold in their in their new country. Meaning if you come, you need a current account, you need a health insurance, you need a liability insurance, whatever, a couple of, of additional uh, steps to, to get, get sorted. Then throughout the studying, we have um, semi-annual progress reports where we're staying in touch with a with a student and get a kind of rich qualitative view of what the student's current uh, situation is. If there's any indication of a problem, we have a, a team of uh, volunteer mentors who can step in and support the student. And then the very important phase is towards the end of the studies, uh, when the student is wrapping it up and is about to enter the job market. The the areas we we look and support are. Um, everything that's career related. So first of all, what is their career? How do they apply? Some people, particularly in the STEM field, are technically brilliant, but aren't the best at marketing themselves. So when it comes to how do I even apply, do I write one application and make it really good? Or do I write 10 or maybe 50? Like these type of, um, of, of topics, we have tools for this. And then, of course, um, optimizing a CV, making sure this is a CV that is kind of good on the market, um, helping them with the negotiating the salary. Kind of, of course, each each percent they get get more is more money for us. And um, cover letter and and similar topics. We haven't um, closed a lot of employer partnerships yet, but this is on our further roadmap to to get more and more employer partnerships. Because if we say here's a pool of 50 high qualified uh, STEM students um, and they would like to enter the workforce, particularly for hidden champions somewhere in the um, uh, kind of uh, deeper country, it is very tough to get uh, access to these types of talents. And um, uh, this is essentially what we do. So select first, and afterwards help them orient accompany during the study and then support them in the job finding. Marta, how is that with student finance? Are you are you providing that kind of coaching, I would already call it, uh, providing that kind of coaching as well? So I would say two things to start. First, we do a very strong pre-vetting of the education partners we work with. And so we validate quality of the program, fit to labor markets, uh, you know, placement rates, salary levels, etc. So students can be absolutely assured that if we have partners on the platform. They are delivering high quality education and getting people to the outcomes that they should, right? And I think this is this goes a long way, right? Because we know that this type of education providers now are emerging, uh, you know, extensively. And so you have a lot of new entrants and, 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 and we need to make sure that students are sure that quality d does exist. Uh, then I would say a line to, to Bjorn, we do a lot close to, to, to the end of the journey. Our process just to enforce, we are very integrated with education partners, right? So our our even the application for student finance is completely embedded in the application to the education partner themselves, right? So we do have a lot of visibility on what's going on through the education cycle. Uh, and when they're finishing, we also, uh, obviously we do that support to job placement, but we also feel that particularly when you go to reskilling, that there is a, a strong part of community of them being in contact with people that have gone through that journey. Like, huge imposter syndrome happening in reskilling because people are going through big life transformations and we can go about the waiter like the most extreme the waiter turning into developer the biggest blocker into what well, these people getting jobs is them believing that they can because they are qualified from a training perspective and skills perspective but they need to believe they can and so we expose them a lot to community that they see people who kind of model that journey and who they can have contact on a kind of one-on-one -on -one basis uh, and who obviously give them that, that that belief that they can do it. And then all the relationship with the, the relationship with the employers and facilitating that entrance to the to the labor market, which is crucial for to get the machine going at scale, right? Which is the, the intention. Yeah. Yeah. Tess. Great. Yeah. So from our perspective, I think, you know, similar to what Marta shared, first part is stride being a signal around quality of different educational institutions. We say a lot more no's than we say yeses to schools mm -hmm. that we'll work with because we really want to focus on 
this is a good investment in your future, right? And the outcomes will be worth it. Not just that you can get access to a good financing tool, but ultimately we've done the vetting um, on your behalf. Exactly like, you know, uh, Jorn had mentioned, while students are in school, it's a lot of support around what do they need to get through this program, persistence in program and then getting a job. So for example, for nurses, we give them access to NCLEX prep, which is the nursing licensure exams. Okay. Um, we also have really thought about where do we really build versus where do we partner? And I think ultimately with a lot of wraparound support, there are great tools that exist, but it's about us doing the assessing of these tools and then integrating them within our platform. So we have job tracking systems to help students manage their you know, interview flow, again, partnerships with employers. And then the last piece is, you know, the first product we are offering to these students is this education financing product. But what else do we need or what else do these students need along their journey as a consumer? Mm-hmm. And so we've been really thinking through, you know, what other big decisions do they have to go through in their life? Uh, big purchases, big investments, and ultimately support. And, um, you know, that's how we really see Stride growing beyond this this first phase. Uh, actually, that to, to me, all in all, that sounds great, to be honest. Now, at, at least on this level of discussion and conversation and and I could imagine maybe you also support me when I'm maybe a bit on the chop already and I want to kind of fight for a pay rise and so on. And and uh, it, it's, it's really getting that this really sounds like getting into a holistic life coaching at, at the end of the day. Right. And I and for the ones who only hear us and do not see us, I see my guests all nodding and re- visually confirming that 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 I would find to be very good, actually, almost too good to be true. but. Um, nevertheless, we, we come to the end of the show. And as always, I ask my guests one final question. And, and again, we, we speak to maybe people, uh, still being in school, ready to exit school, ready to go the next step into university or any kind of, uh, further education program, not having the funds at home. Now, maybe hearing about ISA platforms as a first in the first instance and and identifying them to be a partner, what would be your single piece of advice how to select one of those partners? Because I think there are more than us around on the market, aren't they? Uh, and and Tess, uh, let me start with you. What As yeah. a student, what would you look at? Absolutely. So I think first and foremost, finding a provider that offers a lot of transparency around the terms and a lot of education around cost calculators, exactly what this obligation looks like, and and then also clarity on the type of program that you're about to uh, join and embark on, I think is really important to make the right choice. And secondly, of course, there are different structures as far as the duration of the repayments and the the maximum percentage of income that that are owed that are tailored to different students based on their priorities. And Usually, and I, I assume Martin Bajorn, is your pricing is also tied to the program, the school, the institution itself, versus the individual. And so, really, that comes down to: Are you picking an institution that has an outcomes-based funding product that meets your needs and your priorities more so than the pri- provider at that stage? Wonderful, Tess. Thank you so much, Marta. Uh, and, and, and to confirm, <laughs> Tess, yes, I think the, the the first layer of risk management is certainly the education partner and the quality of that. And and that leads me to what I would actually uh, like to focus the conversation. I think people should ask about outcomes. Like at the end of the day, people are going through this financing to get somewhere uh, and we should create that level of transparency that Tess was mentioning. Okay, what are the platform's outcomes? What are the average salary increases that people are getting? How long are they taking to get jobs post uh, completing the education those for me would be kind of the two core metrics that I would love uh, to be to be seeing with a lot of transparency and visibility and being discussed on a program specific basis whenever someone is applying for clear KPIs and 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 take this very transparently to the outside, saying, "Listen, this is Absolutely. my students." achieve that X, Y, Z number and so on and so forth. And, and yes. by the way, we have that conversation with our education partners as well. So there is no, oh, no, no reason why we should not be creating that level of transparency across the chain from applicant or user, funder, education partner. Wonderful. Björn, as, as the special platform, special purpose platform in this round? 
Sure. Um, I think the, the first thing, if we take even one more step back, um, if someone looks for uh, funding for studies, first of all, take all the free money you can get. If there's any scholarship or anything on the table, that's always uh, the, the first to go. I would recommend this to students. Then the second layer is kind of, do they have access to loans or do they want to go for an ISA or, or whatever? Here, it really depends on the risk profile. If somebody has access to a kind of um, uh, low low interest rate loan and is very confident about their earnings ability. This might be the better choice if, if someone is very, very certain that they're going to have a good career and um, have a have a high high risk tolerance and uh, and a cheap loan. For many people, this is not available because they don't get loans or they have uncertainty about their future outcome. And in this case, yes, I believe ISAs are the, the best choice for, for the student. And then regarding picking different ISA platforms, I don't think there's too much uh, kind of competition. Like, um, I, I don't think that uh, students typically have have three, four offers from ISA platforms on the table. But if if that were the case, hypothetically, I would say, of course, look at the terms, understand transparently, like like uh, the others have said, what you're being offered, and maybe also look a little bit at the value alignment. Uh, basically, how is the ISA platform making money? Is it just on me as a student, which makes them maximally aligned? Or are they majorly getting kickbacks from the institutions? Or how exactly is the incentivation uh, happening? Um, but I think it's a, it's a hypothetical. Most most of the students um, go for one one provider in their niche. Yeah. But anyhow, it's good to know what to look at, you know, because we also could now add another last, last question, which is what actually not to do in any case from the student side in order to be successful with one of the ISA platforms, actually, you know. So, but we leave that aside and I would say uh, the best preparation is actually to have good, a good, uh, good marks, uh, good school education, good outcome there. And uh, in order to then progress into any kind of academic or non-academic future. Listen, guys, Thank you so much. I personally learned a lot uh, that might be given by my age and being a bit remote to the student market in the meantime. Um, but I learned a lot. It was, at least for me, very, very interesting. Thank you very much for your openness. Thank you, Tess Michaels, for joining the show, Marta Palmero and Bjorn Wolf for coming to the show. Thank you so much. That was episode 174, Study Now, Pay Later. And, um, well, you know, uh, Breaking Banks Europe says goodbye. Thank you so much. <laughs> Have a lovely Thank day. You. Thank you Thanks so much for having, for having us. us. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.